0: First Timothy chapter two, verses one through eight. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, then, that in every place the men shall pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. You may now be seated.
1: Uh, this morning, we are taking a, a brief hiatus. We finished our series on Philippians. We're going to begin an Advent series in Matthew. And in between series, I just like to go wherever I want in the Bible. And because we didn't get to really focus on prayer during the typical day that we would have focused on prayer a few weeks ago, I wanted to talk about prayer. And I want to do that from the text that we heard read, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, where Paul is writing this young pastor, Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus, and he's giving him instructions on how to be a faithful pastor of a fruitful church. And in our passage, Paul is saying that if we want to be a fruitful church, if we want to be a missional church, if we want to be a church that's seeing lives changed, there is a starting point for that. And that starting point is prayer. And I think I I know that we're still somewhat in the getting to know each other phase, I realize that, but I also, uh, I believe that I've been around you long enough to say with some degree of confidence, if there is one preeminent desire among the people in this church, it is that this church would be used to tangibly change the spiritual landscape of the city. And this, this desire certainly predates me in one of Kurt's last sermons, the seasons of OGC. He talked about this being a season of influence. And so if we want to be a, in a season of influence, if we want to be a church that's tangibly affecting the spiritual landscape of the city, we also need to see that there's a starting point, and that starting point is prayer. Do you know that every major revival, awakening, and great missionary movement that I've ever read about has been preceded by this movement of God's spirit among God's people to pray? During the Great Awakenings, or right before the Great Awakenings, there were churches that were filled with people at all hours of the night who would stay there for insanely long periods of time doing nothing but praying, praying and confessing their sin, praying for God's mercy, and praying that the word of God and his gospel would go forward, It was so significant, actually, there were some churches that had to physically remove people because they couldn't, they they didn't have the staff to be able to oversee that many people at these hours just coming to pray. So if we want to be that kind of church, if we want to see ourselves used, then we need to hear this morning what it is that Paul has to say about prayer. And I want to look at this passage, and I, I think Paul answers three questions really clearly. First, who it is that we're supposed to be praying for. Second, uh, who it is that we're supposed to be praying for, how we pray, and then thirdly, why we can pray at all. So I wanna answer those questions first, who it is that we pray for. Well, very simply, we pray for all people. Look at verse one. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So what exactly does that mean? What is all people? I mean, does that mean that, that we need to get out a phone book and go name by name and begin to pray for every single person in the city of Orlando? I'm looking around right now thinking a third of you don't even know what a phone book is. <laughs> but I, I think we can reason enough to understand that Paul's not saying that we need to pray for every individual in our state, city, country, and world. We just, that's logistically impossible. So what is it that Paul's saying? Because I also don't think on the other end of the spectrum, Paul is saying that we should just have one sweeping prayer. God, would you bless all people? Amen. I mean, if that's all Paul is telling us we need to do, then what in the world was Jesus doing out every night? It's something in between. So what is it that Paul's commanding? He's not saying pray for every individual person. He's saying pray for all kinds of people. We need to be praying for all types of people and, and certainly some of those people we're gonna know by name. We're gonna be able to name our friends and our family and certainly one category of people that we have to pray for is our local church. And the church that I come from, the lead teaching pastor was a guy named J.D. Shaw and he, he affected me and influenced me in lots of ways. I learned a lot from J.D. But the thing that, that hit me the most in all my years at Grace Bible Church was that daily... He would pray by name for every single person in our church. And I know that this is a practice that your former pastor and your elders do at this church. And they go name by name of every person in this church. And they don't just pray for your name, they know how to pray for you. They pray for you and for your family and issues that they know you need prayer in. So this is one type of people that we need to be praying for, the local church. But it's not the only type of people that we're to be praying for we're to be praying for people who we don't know or maybe don't even know their names and so Paul in this passage he actually identifies one type of people one kind of people that we need to be praying for kings and those in high positions so why is it that Paul would command us of all the types of people all the categories he could pick why does he command kings and those in high positions I think the really obvious answer that most of us would see is, well, they influence our lives more than anybody else. And and that's certainly true. But I think that Paul's doing something even more here than that. He's asking the Ephesians and, and indirectly us to be praying for people who are hard to pray for. Kings and those in high positions would have been very hard to pray for. They would have been hard to pray for for at least three reasons that I can think of First, they would have been hard to pray for because the kings and the high officials were persecuting the Ephesian church. So in that day, Nero was emperor. Nero was issuing decrees of persecution on Christians and those in high positions of authority were the ones that were implementing that persecution. And it is not the easiest thing to pray for people who are willingly contributing to your suffering and trials. But Paul's pushing on the Ephesians and saying, pray for those people. So they persecuted him. And in saying this, Paul isn't bringing a new idea to the table. (laughs) Certainly, Jesus said very famously, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that's one reason it would have been hard. Secondly, it would have been hard because kings and high officials are out of sight and out of mind. (laughs) I mean, there's a really good, uh, a really good chance that not a single believer in the Ephesian church had ever even seen Nero. You know? and, and even the local high officials, they were likely in some palace or building and, and they were separated from the average person by their help and their security. So the kings and high officials weren't people that were in the everyday lives of the Ephesian church. And it is very easy to not pray for people who were out of sight and out of mind. So that's a second reason it would have been likely hard for these people to pray for kings and those in high positions. And then thirdly, I think it would have been hard to pray for these people because humanly speaking, they were the least likely to convert statistically the more power the more wealth somebody has the less likely they are to convert to christianity and again i'm not the first to say this jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of god but as we know with man this is impossible but with god all things are possible we tend to not pray for people who we don't believe will really be affected by our prayers So for these reasons, I think Paul's identifying one category of people who would have been hard to pray for. And in doing so, he's getting to our hearts. (laughs) He's addressing the hardness of the Ephesian hearts, the believers there. And he's asking us maybe to go to some uncomfortable places and look at the hardness of our hearts as well in the way that we pray. So Paul is pushing their boundaries. He wants them to pray for people who are out of sight and out of mind. He wants them to pray for people who willingly contribute maybe to their harm, to their enemies. Maybe, maybe it's people in our lives who we have prayed for for years and we have seen no fruit of those prayers and we're beginning to wonder if God can and will be able to change the hearts of the people we're praying for. And in, in this passage, Paul is telling us those are exactly the kinds of prayers that we need to be praying. Every type of person. So, I want to prime the pump a little bit. <laughs> I want us to, to be thinking of the kinds of people that would not be natural for us to pray for. And I'm going to do this by going to two different ends of our social spectrum. And again, I'm not saying these are the, these are the two categories you need to pray for, but I do want to prime the pump and see where the Holy Spirit leads you in the kinds of people that you would pray for. So on one end of the social spectrum... Maybe we should pray for the leaders of the political party that we didn't vote for. Uh, I mean, they're certainly out of sight, out of mind. I mean, we may see them on the TV, but we don't know them. We maybe think that they are willingly contributing to our harm, whatever party that might be. And they certainly affect the the way that our society goes. So maybe that's one category and one end of the social spectrum that we need to consider praying for more. Or maybe we go on the other end of the social spectrum and we think of those, the voiceless in our society. You know, those who really are out of sight, out of mind. These would be the unborn, the underprivileged, the disenfranchised, the incarcerated, the mentally incapacitated. In our prayers we really can be a loud voice for the voiceless. And these are the kinds of people that Paul wants us to be praying for when he says, pray for all peoples. So here's a challenge, all right? I'm gonna give you a challenge and I'm taking this challenge on myself. For the next 30 30 days, I'm gonna do something and I'm asking that you would enter into this with me. I want us to come up with five different types of people. All right, Five different groups of people that we're not currently praying for, and I'm going to give you a few categories to think about as you think about these different, these different kinds of people that we can be praying for. Maybe one group is close to you. One group is far off. One group is out of sight, out of mind. And then one group is persecuted. And lastly, maybe one group that has done you wrong in some way. All right, I'm gonna say that again, and if you're a note-taking person, here are these categories. A group that's close to you, a group that's far off, a group that's out of sight, a group that is under persecution, and a group that has done you wrong. What if we pray for those groups for 30 days and just see... <laughs> See if God maybe doesn't begin to soften our hearts to some groups of people that we never thought our hearts would be soft to before and see if maybe we don't see some of these groups of people come into this very church. We worship a very big God who can do anything and I want to, I want to expect even that. All right, that's who we should be praying for but Paul doesn't just stop there. He tells us very specifically how we can be praying for these people. Paul lists four ways that we can be praying for all these different groups of people. And the first three are actually in the first verse. Paul says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So he has prayers, but then he adds supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Why do you think he does that? He could just say, pray for all people. Done. Done but he adds these ways that we're supposed to be praying. And the reason that he does this is because he wants to engage our hearts. You know, he, he doesn't want a gritted, teeth, rote prayer, God, I pray for Nancy Pelosi, or God, I pray for Donald Trump. Amen, done, check. I mean, I get enough of that at the dinner table. God, I pray that my brother would stop being a jerk. those, Those are not the kinds of prayers that God wants from us. He wants our hearts to be engaged. So he gives us these different categories of ways to engage our heart. And the first category is intercession. So we're not just supposed to pray for these groups of people. We're supposed to go on their behalf and ask God that he would give them the things that they need, whatever it is. And then we go from intercession to supplication. So if intercession is like a petition, supplication is like a plea. We go to God and we beg for the things that they need. We ask him, maybe even on our knees. We intercess and then we have supplication. And then thirdly, Paul says that we need to do it with thanksgiving. You know, I I feel like the bar just got really high there. We just got to some very hard spots in our heart. And you know, if if there is an area of the Christian life outside of parenting maybe, where there is more guilt involved than prayer. I don't know what it is. All of us know that we can be praying more. All of us know that we can pray more specifically. All of us know that we can pray more biblically. So then we hear that we have to pray for all people and intercess for them and provide supplication and then give thanks for these people. And it can just feel like all of a sudden I'm out. I'm just not this kind of Christian anymore. But we have to understand what Paul's doing here is he's really getting to our own hearts, He's helping us to soften our hearts to the people who who God loves and God wants and God is pursuing. And any good marriage counselor will tell you that the cure to bitterness is thankfulness. Find one thing about your spouse that you're genuinely thankful for and it has a way of softening your heart and opening this door where you can then go to places that you weren't able to go in your marriage because of your bitter spirit. And often it's kind of the backside of the thing you don't like that you're really thankful for. You know, if you're married in the crowd, usually it's the the thing that irritates you the most about your spouse is the thing that originally you liked the most and you were most drawn to and you were most thankful for. So in, in my marriage, Angela would say she was very initially drawn to my driven nature. All right, we get married and all of a sudden she's drowning in my wake. I've got, another, I've got a buddy who would say his wife was very drawn to his laid-back nature. They got married, and now he's lazy. <laughs> so that, that part's for free. <laughs> but what we're seeing here is that when we can communicate thankfulness for somebody that we're not initially drawn to, it has a way of opening up our own hearts and changing our own hearts and the way that we, we think about them. I can tell you this isn't just a guess on my part. Right? Sometimes I have guesses, I, I, I suppose things and I'll tell you if I'm supposing that but here I know that's not what Paul's doing because of one word. In verse one, this word then, then. First of all, then. You could also translate this word as therefore and what do we do with a the therefore? We find out what it's there for. So if we go back First of all, then, first of all, therefore, what is it that Paul's building on? At the end of chapter one, he's building on these verses. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And here it is, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Alexander. So holding faith and a good conscience, all right? That's the key. That's what the then is pointing back towards. And Paul's telling us that if we don't hold the faith with a good conscience, we will make shipwreck of what we say is our faith. That's what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander. And as a rule of thumb, you don't want to be named in the Bible. But they're named for good reason, and we should be paying attention to the people who are named and why. So the question that we need to ask is how is it that a fully engaged heart in prayer affects our holding the faith with good conscience? How do those things, two things go together? And I have to credit John Piper for helping me to see this really clearly. But think about it. So a good conscience, a good conscience is something that does not condemn you for what you do or don't do, right? Right? So a bad conscience then is a conscience that does condemn you for either the things that you do or left undone. And every Christian in this room, if you've been a Christian more than 5 minutes, you've experienced some form of a bad conscience. You you know what it's like to fall into habits and ways of thinking that you know you're not supposed to. Your conscience tells you, the Holy Spirit inside you tells you, this is not the way you need to be living your life. You're a Christian It happens to me, and and my conscience doesn't only say you're Christian. They say, Jim, you're teaching the Bible every Sunday, and you're doing this, and you're thinking this. And in those moments, we have these bad consciences that begin to bore holes into the belly of our ship of faith. And when that happens, and we're praying to a holy God, one of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to repent, we're gonna change our ways and we're gonna shore up the holes in the belly of our ship of faith or we're gonna show that our faith was never seaworthy in the first place. And we're gonna to sink to the abyss of unbelief, unbelief like Hymenaeus and Alexander. And Paul is saying that prayer is one of those places where you see your bad consciences. You can't go to a holy and perfect God and ask him for anything, much less the souls of all types of people and not have some sort of bad conscience come up. And so praying for for all people is one of the ways that God uses to conform us more and more into his image because we see our sin, we confess our sin and we see God's grace even more. And in prayer, we see we are really worshiping. In prayer, it is an act of faith. And what Paul is teaching us is that the command isn't just that we would do something, it's that we would become something. His focus isn't on our actions, his focus is in our hearts in this passage. So that's the first three ways that we're to pray. But then we have a fourth in verse two. Paul says we're to pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And I'll be honest, I, I come to this verse and I read this verse and it's just uncomfortable for me. You know, I, I, my, maybe it's just the way I'm wired, but I think a peaceful and quiet life, that's not what the Christian's called to. We're called to be soldiers. We're called to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. So what is Paul saying when he says we need to leave a, lead a peaceful and quiet life? You know, we think of people like Jim Elliot who gave everything to bring the gospel where it wasn't. That doesn't sound like a peaceful and quiet life to me. So is what Paul is saying here contradicting the lives of people like Jim Elliot? No. Let me tell you what Paul's not saying before I tell you what he is saying. Paul is not saying that the call of the Christian life is that we would be comfortable. It's not what he's saying. Paul is saying that peaceful lives in some way contribute to the gospel going to all nations. Paul is looking at a church under persecution by Nero and he believes that if that persecution could be lifted in some way, the gospel would go forth in a more significant way. And, you know, and we look at the way the United States has enjoyed relative religious freedom for 400 years and the way that has facilitated the gospel going around the globe. And you just can't debate the fact that there is something about a peaceful and quiet, godly life that facilitates the gospel going where it's not. And so for that reason, we need to have a special eye on the persecuted church. And we need to be praying that they would get to enjoy the, the opportunity for a peaceful and quiet life the way we have for many years. Because Lord knows there may be come, coming a time in the near future where we're going to need our South American brothers and sisters to be praying that for us. So, we're to be praying with supplication, intercession, thanksgiving, that we may lead quiet, peaceful, godly lives so that the gospel will flourish. But up until this point, all I've said is what we're supposed to do. And in the United States of America right now, we have, largely speaking, I think two groups of people. Largely speaking. We have a group of people mostly outside the church that pray just assuming their prayers are heard and we have a group of people inside the church praying not realizing what all has happened so that we can pray in the first place so I want to finish by looking at this passage as to why we can pray why we can pray for all types of people and the answer is twofold there are two reasons that we can pray for all types of people. And the first is simply that God desires it. God desires it. And, and to show this, all right, I'm going to a landmine verse in the Bible. Some of you saw it. I actually, I watched for it. When the scripture was read, I saw some eyes come up at this one verse. There's one verse that has been used like a grenade being thrown from theological camp to theological camp. And it's this verse. You Ready? And I'm gonna read it and, and think, I want you to be remembering, Paul's giving us the first part of the reason about why we can pray for all people. Because this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All right, you see the landmine part here? God desires all people to be saved. Yet we know all people aren't saved. We know that. We know there are people like Judas, who are going to hear at the end of time, depart from me, I never knew you. So is God limited in some way in his ability to carry out his desire? Is he even worse, unwilling to do something that he desires? This is why it's a landmine verse. But the answer is actually not that complicated (laughs) because whatever this all people is that God desires to be saved, it's the all people that we're supposed to be praying for. And we already see that that's not every single person, that's all types of people. And so what Paul is saying is God desires all types of people to be saved all classes of people to be saved all ethnicities to be saved he has a heart for every class for kings for slaves for politicians and for peasants and that's the heart that he wants to cultivate in us as well he wants his church to be full of every type of people he desires it so we pray it And I want to be the first to say that there would be nothing more useless than prayer if God didn't desire the thing that we're praying for. And we have proof from the word of God that he desires it. He desires us to pray for every single type of person as a church, and he desires to see them enter his kingdom. So our prayers matter. They really, really matter. Because God desires it. Secondly, we can pray because we have a mediator. Look at verses five and six. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So here's that word all again that I hope is clear now, all types of people. Do you realize that The only reason that we can pray is because we have a mediator. We have somebody to go between us and a holy and perfect God. There's this phrase in Christianity that I'm sure most of you have heard. It says, different variations of it, but basically it says, hell is eternity without the presence of God. Hell is an eternity separated from the presence of God. And I appreciate what this phrase is trying to communicate, but it's theologically inaccurate. Hell is, is standing in front of a holy and perfect God with no mediator at all. That's what hell's gonna be. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, first, I really appreciate that you would be here. And I want this to be a safe place for people to come in and ask questions. And so I'm guessing if you're here and you're not a believer today, that that's the most controversial part of this this whole sermon, that we really need a mediator to go between us and God For anything at all, much less something as small as praying. And so if that's you, I want to briefly make a Christian argument for why it is that we need a mediator and why that mediator is Jesus Christ. Because that's clearly what Paul is doubling down on in our passage. So why do we need a mediator? We need a mediator because we are sinful, rebellious people and God is holy and perfect. And there's this idea out there that that the Christian God is just allergic to sin. You know, he can't be around sin or he, he might get sick. But in the Bible, every place you have sinfulness and holiness coming together with no mediator, there is an explosion. And when the dust settles, God's doing just fine. We have to have some sort of mediator to go between us and holy God. And I'll tell you, as a pastor of this church, I'm certainly not it. <laughs> you need someone more qualified. So why is it that Jesus Christ is that mediator? What makes him uniquely qualified? Why can't Oprah Winfrey go between me and God? Why can't the person who writes the horoscopes or why can't Muhammad? Why can't Buddha be the person who goes in between us and God? Why does it have to be Jesus? And increasingly in our pluralistic society, we see a culture that's okay with a Jesus that doesn't that doesn't make us it doesn't force us to exclude these other options but that's not the jesus of the bible and i want to make my case by this mind experiment all right when you have two parties that are at odds the the more tension there is the more complicated the issues and the more that's at stake the fewer people are qualified to mediate the two parties Make sense? So, for example, um, my wife might say that she feels like she's a full-time mediator. We have four little kids and you come off a week where they're out of school and we feel like most of the time we're mediating something. But really, the complexity of the issues is not that high. What's at stake is not that high. So most any of you in this room can come in and enter into the mediation of my children. And I had a few family members this week do that. So, low level anybody can mediate but let's let's take something with more tension. let's say you have two two major businesses looking to merge all right there's so many complexities going on there's more at stake because huge sums of money are at stake people's jobs are at stake so the number of people who can mediate those two entities is much smaller okay then you go up and let's say two countries are about to go to war This is a life and death issue with so many different cultural barriers, so many different complexities, so many different incentives, that there are literally just a handful of people in the whole world who can mediate that kind of situation. And then finally, we get to mediation between a holy God and sinful people, and everything's on the line. The distance between the two could not be more significant. And so we're left with truly only one person who can mediate at all because there's only one person who has ever come fully man, fully tempted as we are, uh, able to sympathize and understand with everything that we could bring to the father, yet fully God without any sin, fully able to confidently approach the throne on our behalf because he is fully God and fully man And he has fully bridged that gap by coming down here and trading places with us on the cross. We get everything he earned and he takes everything we earned on the cross. Our Lord endured the full presence of God on the cross with no mediator. And because of that, he is the only one qualified to be our mediator. So my question for everybody in this room is, do you have a mediator? <laughs> the Christian hope is that all of us would be able to say yes. And if you don't have a mediator today, today can be the day that you get one. Jesus wants to be your mediator. God desires all people, all types of people to come into his kingdom. And then for the believer in the room, in addition to being the reason why we can pray. Jesus is the proof that God desires all types of people because he came here at great cost to himself to be able to secure that desire. And we can know that God is going to follow through on his desires. So this passage is about prayer this passage is about developing a missional church and softening hearts inside of this church so that we would really want to pursue people the way that God wants to pursue people. So I wanna finish by doing something slightly differently. I wanna finish by giving us an opportunity to think about maybe two types of people that you don't normally pray for, two categories. All right, I want you to go ahead and get them in your mind, two categories of people. And I wanna spend a minute silently just praying I want to implement right now the kinds of, the the, the very things that Paul is teaching to the Ephesians and obviously by way of the Ephesians, us. So get those two types of people in your mind and let's pray. God, I thank you that included in all types of people are us. That you didn't limit your promise to one ethnicity, but you expanded it to include a room of Largely, if not all, largely Gentiles. And God, I, I'll I'll come to you this morning and pray for the two groups that came to my mind. I I want to pray for my neighborhood that I don't pray for enough, and very specific neighbors who uh, who I know are not believers, who don't go to a gospel believing church, and I want to pray that you would move in their hearts and and make it possible for. For the gospel to go into our neighborhood Through us And God I want to lift up The people of the island of Sentinel That many of us read about This week in the news uh, A truly uh, Secluded tribe of people on an island The size of Manhattan I don't know all the ins and outs Of what Jonathan Chow Was doing but It seems like he wanted to take the gospel there And And God, it seems clear the gospel is not there, and I don't think to pray for the people on the island of Sentinel often, so I lift them up to you, that this terrible disaster that happened, uh, that it would open up some sort of way for the gospel to get to this group of people that seems more cut off than even North Koreans. And I thank you that we have the opportunity to, to come here and in our prayers be revealed, that our hearts would be, softened, that we would become aware of the places our hearts are hard, and God, I pray that you would, you would use our prayers because we are praying for something you desire. We know that, and we come to you asking that you would fulfill what we know you did to desire, that all types of people in this city would be changed, that they would be drawn to you, that they would come here, and they would see that they need a mediator, and that the only possible mediator is your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the mediation that he has done, is doing, and will do on on behalf of us in this room. We praise you for that, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.